Welcome to the Candid Divorce Lawyer Podcast, brought to you by Trithowans. Family law can be an emotional roller coaster, a mix of sadness, anger, hope, and worry. The Candid Divorce Lawyer explores topics from marriage to divorce and everything in between. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is for informational purposes only. If you're looking for legal advice, please do not hesitate to get in touch with us via the details in our bio. Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Camden Divorce Lawyer. I'm Grant Cameron, and I'm today joined by Andrew Mercer, head of our family law team at Trithowans. Today, we're going to look at the topic of nuptial agreements. Now, when we talk about nuptial agreements, most commonly people think of prenuptial agreements, but sometimes people may enter into them after they've got married. And we're also seeing an increasing trend for pet nuptial agreements, which we'll discuss a bit later on during the podcast. We thought it just might be helpful to set out, well, what is a nuptial agreement? Now, this is an agreement that a couple would want to enter into prior to getting married, or sometimes to say after they've got married, to deal with their finances, property and assets, so that if they were sadly to get divorced, decisions have already been made between them, their intentions have been clearly set out as to how they want that property or assets to be dealt with. Now, I've mentioned pet nuptial agreements, and it can be quite shocking for people to learn that actually a beloved pet is a chattel or a possession within a marriage, and therefore they're not going to be treated the same way that couples would look at their children. So in a nuptial agreement, the couple can set out who is going to take care of that pet should they get divorced. Are they going to have the equivalent of a sort of joint arrangement where they both would look after the pet and also any financial considerations? And certainly here in Britain, pets are very much a sort of feature in sort of a relationship. And say so we've noticed that we've had a lot of inquiries which have actually really focused on looking after the animals and what's going to happen, as I say, should sadly you get divorced. So a nuptial agreement, to say, is an agreement that's been entered into so that parties' intentions can be clearly set out. Now, it would be fair to say many people will think this is a sort of preserve, if you like, of the rich and famous. Brooklyn Beckham and Nicola Feltz is a recent example, and there are many sort of celebrity and high-profile couples where it's known that they've entered into a prenuptial agreement or their relationships come to an end, and then it's discussed what did they actually set out when they first got together. But actually, we found they're not just of the rich and famous. Couples may have had a situation where one or both of them may have previously been divorced and built up assets. They may have inherited wealth from family or others, and they want to protect their assets. They also may have children from a first relationship, and they want to safeguard assets or property for them moving forward. So actually, a nuptial agreement is a really useful tool in safeguarding these. Other examples are that a party may have built up a business a long time before the couple got together. And again, that party wants to protect that asset. But obviously, it's got to recognise the new relationship and sort of the new party's needs, which Andrew's going to talk about a little later on. Now, nuptial agreements, it would be right to say, historically, were seen very much as against public policy. 
In Britain, our judges have a wide discretion and they like to flex their muscles and use that discretion to make decisions, whether it relates to a property, whether it relates to cash or assets and pensions. And as I say, they don't like to feel that their jurisdiction or their powers have somehow been limited. But it would be right to say that there were challenges, certainly from other countries. Nuptial agreements are very popular, particularly in the US and a number of the European countries. And so there was an increasing pressure here on, in Britain to sort of look at such agreements and why weren't they seen as legally enforceable. Now, although the judges didn't want to feel that their powers were going to be restricted, equally, they knew that they were under pressure. And it was all set to change in 2010 when there was a landmark case of Radmacher and Granatino, which involved a millionaire French husband and a very wealthy German heiress. Now I'm going to hand over to Andrew because he can talk a little bit about what did this case sort of establish. So thank you for the introduction, Grant. The first test the court decided was that the agreement should be one which is freely entered into. That is something which both of you want, and for good reason. Ideally, you should be looking to enter into this agreement at least 28 days before the date of your marriage. To start the discussions, you should look to do so, I would say, six months before, having regard to the complexity and the information that you need to gather together in order to make this something which is going to be workable, fair, and ultimately upheld by the court should the need arise. Andrew, and just jumping in there and absolutely agree that it's sensible to really have these early discussions and to make sure the agreement's all signed up sort of outside that 28-day period. But also for our listeners to say that if time, there are time constraints, then you can always look at post-nuptial agreements. So it could be once they've got married, they may still want to set out their intentions exactly the same as they would prior to their marriage. And a post-nuptial agreement's another way that they could achieve that. That's absolutely right. And quite often we discover that it isn't until it's too late, effectively, for a prenuptial agreement to take place that we get instructed to try and do something. And as a consequence, we then turn around and say, this isn't going to work that way, but it will work if it's a postnuptial agreement. Yeah. To some extent, the advantage of the postnuptial agreement is then it takes away some of the element of duress because you're already married. So it's not being held as a sort of, of your head that unless you actually uh, reach the, the agreement uh, that uh, the wedding won't take place. Yeah. Um, so I think I find myself actually uh, entering into more postnuptial agreements than I, at the moment than I do prenuptial agreements. Mm. But it does take out some of the pressures, I suppose, uh, in that they're already there. Therefore, it's just the sensible discussions as to what and how they wish their wealth to be dealt with in the unlikely eventuality that they were to subsequently separate and divorce. Yeah. So it's not to be seen as an opportunity for one party to take a more dominant position than the other. And with the involvement of the lawyers within the process, clearly we're there to ensure that that isn't the case. A court will ultimately want to have consideration to the terms by which the agreement was reached. And that can be the party's ages, their experience, their maturity and knowledge of finances. The second aspect is that you need to have a full appreciation of what the agreement actually entails. It needs to therefore be in a language you can both understand and one which is fully explained to you by your lawyers. 
with this, there needs to be full and frank independent legal advice. You both have to have your own lawyers, but this isn't an occasion whereby the lawyers are pitching themselves against each other. They are working together with you both to try and breach a fair and reasonable agreement, which ultimately will be upheld by the court should the need arise. Yeah. With this, you need to provide each other with the full disclosure, which will mean effectively the warts and all story of your financial lives including the things that you may not have previously told them about relevant debts or other aspects of your finances. In order for you both to be able to come to an agreement, it needs to be an informed one, and therefore you need to be able to provide this. The documentation will be provided to go along with it, and it will be attached to the actual agreement at the end of the day. The third aspect of the test is that it must ultimately still be fair and reasonable. As I've said, it's not possible just to impose on a court what you two have ultimately agreed, but a court will make that order if it is to be seen as one which is fair. And in doing so, you cannot impose this agreement on the court. It will only be prepared to make it if it satisfies your respective needs. Hmm. You can protect your wealth. It does allow you to do so, but you must, in addition, also consider the future of each of you and any children that may be introduced into this marriage. A court is not going to endorse an agreement which is too one-sided or leaves one party with insufficient to satisfy their reasonable needs, such as housing or income. Just touching on that, that goes back to the point I made earlier that the court here do have sort of wide discretions, but it's right to say that we've now got judges who equally don't want to be sort of overly paternalistic or overly interfere. And if they can see that these tests have been fulfilled, then they're much more likely to be persuaded that an agreement provided it meets for the needs of the parties, the children, and it sort of ticks those boxes, they're more likely to support and sort of uphold an agreement. That would be fair to say, wouldn't it? That's absolutely right. And I think one way in which you're also going to try and achieve that is by having a review clause in the agreement for those life changes that will be coming up within your marriage for say the birth of a child or other major event or just over after every five years a bit like when you've got a will you should just get it out dust it off read it through is it still what you two both want is it what you both think is fair if it is put it back away if not start discussing what changes if any need to be made to it and then go back to the solicitors and a supplementary agreement can be attached to the original agreement which sets out those changes hmm. The Law Commission report, which Grant referred to earlier in 2014, which recommended legislative reform, but this recommended reform, but has yet to be brought in. This introduced the term, a qualifying nuptial agreement. In order for an agreement to be contractually valid, you must both be fully aware of what the document says and what it does. It has to be formally executed, that is with a deed, which will be in the presence of a witness, and as before, it must be at least 28 days before the marriage, although I would say significantly before that if you can achieve it. There has to be this full and frank disclosure between the two of you. You're not going to get away with hiding your assets or your debts. It won't achieve anything ultimately. There needs to be independent legal advice. As I previously said, you need to go and structure your own lawyers, but they're not there to become adversarial about this. This is something which all four of us would work together to get a document which we're all comfortable with and can then be signed in the knowledge that in the rare event that it proves to be necessary, it is something which a court will subsequently endorse. 
we still remain hopeful that these proposed reforms will be brought in, the time will tell. Back to you, Grant. Thank you, Andrew. I mentioned earlier on about prenuptial agreements or postnuptial agreements being seen as very popular in other parts of the world and say particularly the US. And quite often we might build into our nuptial agreements what we call a mirror clause. So if we're dealing with sort of foreign nationals or a party to a foreign national who may have wanted to enter into such an agreement abroad, we can then replicate those terms so that there can be no sort of indecision made in the event of separation or divorce. It can also determine well, which jurisdiction is going to deal with making decisions if indeed any court has to get involved and that may well be the courts of England and Wales or a foreign jurisdiction if the parties prefer. So again it gives those parties sort of freedom of choice and an ability to set down their sort of intentions right at the outset. Some other clauses that we often include are confidentiality clauses so that if somebody's a bit concerned that information could be sort of passed over or sort of let out of the bag, as it were, confidential clauses can be included that says that the parties who will, obviously the parties will be aware of the detail, their lawyers will be aware of the detail and any other professionals. But other than that, it's very much a private document. So one of the beauty of such agreements is they're as broad as they're long we listen to the clients, what do they want to incorporate in the document, whether it be to do with their property, their businesses, their money, their assets, and going back to sort of the important consideration of pets, all these factors can be sort of built into an agreement. So it's very sort of tailored for what our clients would want. I say we've noticed certainly a trend of people making inquiries now, as I say, to protect their assets, to protect their property. And it's certainly something that we think is very much a sort of growing field and to say not just the preserve of the rich and famous. Now, we would more than happily talk to our clients sort of in our sort of free 30 minute interviews to talk about sort of nuptial agreements. And sometimes clients may say, well, we're not thinking of getting married. So then we'll talk about cohabitation agreements and topic, a sort of another podcast topic. But cohabitation agreements is another tool which can be used to make sure that the party's intentions, both during their relationship and in the event of separation, can be set down very clearly to avoid misunderstanding. And to say this is something that we very happily explore with our clients in our, our free interviews. They're not the most romantic document. I think all of us as family lawyers recognize that. Very true. And I think quite often the sort of analogy we might use is if you drive a car, you take out your car insurance, not with the sort of understanding you're going to have an accident, but it gives you a safeguard should that unfortunate event occur. A nuptial agreement's the same. We hope that it will be an agreement that's entered into all those sort of tests, if you like, have been fulfilled, and then it will go into a drawer and subject to the regular review, it'll be dusted down periodically and then put back into the drawer and any changes sort of recognised with legal advice. But this is not in any shape or form to sort of undermine a relationship or the marriage, it's there to give support and to make sure that parties or parties don't feel sort of vulnerable and left in sort of high and dry should their marriage come to an end. I find the more commonplace use for them is the second marriages now where they have children, often grown up children from the previous marriage, and they have accumulated their own wealth. And sensibly, the two of them want to protect their wealth for their children in the future so that they do have their uh, inheritance, as it were. And for that, it is a very positive approach that's being taken by two people that are sensibly whilst entering into marriage, want to make sure that their children are still provided for and protected. 
Yeah, that's very true, Andrew, and a really sort of important point, and obviously something that hopefully our listeners will will sort of think about. So we've come to the end of our podcast today. So thank you for listening. We hope that you will join us again soon for another episode of The Candid Divorce Lawyer. But goodbye for now. I know. Thank you for listening to The Candid Divorce Lawyer podcast, brought to you by Trithowans. To hear more from us, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. You can also follow our Instagram page, at Candid Divorce Lawyer. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is for informational purposes only. If you're looking for legal advice, please do not hesitate to get in touch with us via the details in our bio. 